Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic Narrated, where we bring you a selection of articles from our print issues read aloud by their authors. In this episode, Sarah Dighton reveals the joy of letting unexpected, accidental music in as she narrates her column from the December-January issue of The Critic, Strange Brew. While David Scullion says the Church of England are woefully out of touch and with falling congregations now faces a crisis of leadership and theology, as he reads his feature, remotely wishing you a Merry Christmas. So now, Sarah Dighton on Pop. I'm slightly dreading Spotify doing its annual roundup of what I've been listening to this year. I've had a strange one for music. Because I've been writing a book about the noughties, my choices have been, well, niche covers some of it, and a lot of the rest comes under the heading problematic. There was the week I spent listening to Sacred Trust on repeat while I was working on a chapter about reality TV. That pretty much guarantees I'll be 2021's top listener for Pop Stars Losers One True Voice, last heard of in 2003 when they split acrimoniously after releasing two singles. I know of someone who was identified as a top listener for a grime artist summoned to a hotel by his PR and invited to a luxury pool party, so I keep being disturbed by vague fears of having to excuse myself from a one true voice fan get-together at a municipal pond. More shamefully, there was the R. Kelly interlude, which happened while the R&B star was being tried on and convicted of sexual offences involving underage girls this year. Throughout the noughties, Kelly's abuses were an open secret, a subject for scandalised laughter, while he continued to collaborate with music's best, brightest and ostensibly most feminist. Lady Gaga released a song with him in 2012, four years after he had been tried on child pornography charges and found not guilty when the alleged victim refused to testify. I listened to a whole bunch of R. Kelly while I was following that case and thinking about his protege slash child bride, the singer Arlea, who died in 2001. There was a time when that would not exactly have been a chore. I rounded off plenty of early noughties nights out, grinding away to Ignition Remix, pretending I didn't know things I pretty incontrovertibly knew by then. In 2021, it felt squeamish and grim, voluntarily listening to a groomer do his grooming in plain sight. This, before anyone gets too overwhelmed with pity for me, is all my own fault. I love pop music. It's the first thing I ever imagined myself writing about, and now I get to do that. It means I have to spend my time listening to all the stuff I hate. Which is fine, but leaves me in something of a hole when it comes to identifying the music I've actually enjoyed. Sifting through 2021's releases, it turns out my favourite song is part of a strange arch project by singer-songwriter Angel Olsen. Olsen's previous records, which I've frequently adored, have all had the mesmerising delicacy of someone sharing something intensely, painfully personal. I lost my dream, I lost my reason all again, she keens on the devastating Unfuck the World from the 2014 album Burn Your Fire for No Witness. As the song ends, she repeats, I am the only one now, like the loneliest person in the world. 
This year, though, she released a collection of songs that firstly were not written by her, and secondly, pretty much defied you to take them seriously at first look. Isles is an EP of covers of 80 songs that I'd overheard walking the aisles at the grocery store, she explained in a press release, hence the title. There's Eyes Without a Face by Billy Idol, Safety Dance by Men in Hats, If You Leave by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. These are not intense songs. These are not cool songs. These songs are, well, kind of lame. And the lamest of them all is Gloria, a 1982 disco hit for Laura Branigan. In Branigan's version, it's an unmodulated bray addressed to a mystery woman whose innocence is slipping away. Olsen slows it right down and turns it dreamy and haunted. It doesn't sound like the original, but it does sound very 80s, like something Julie Cruz might have made in her collaborations with David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti. Olsen's aching vocals drifting gorgeously over the lazy drums and layered synths. My scepticism about Isles when I first heard about it was that this would be someone playing music they didn't really like, a grisly slathering of irony on top of something I was never going to enjoy anyway. But the point is that Olsen loves these songs and she sings them without even a shadow of a smirk, so I love them too. The supermarket concept, which threatened to be a contrivance, turned out to be a lovely tribute to the happenstance by which music enters our lives. While the music I've sought out is increasingly stuff I wish I didn't have to hear, the music I've found by chance and fallen for has the added grace of being a joyful accident. Songs half caught on the radio and sought out with nothing but a memory of some nagging hook. Songs that were meant to be blared out across Ibiza dance floors, but that I heard in a provincial leisure centre as the wave machine crashed down on me. Music comes with so much baggage, and the more you know, the more baggage there is. Accidental music sidesteps that problem. It just arrives in your ears when you're doing something else, so you never get the chance to ask if you should like it before you find out that you do like it. I still have to listen to the bad stuff, but Isles is a reminder to slip my headphones off and let the unexpected in, too. And now... David Scullion with Remotely Wishing You a Merry Christmas. Remotely Wishing You a Merry Christmas by David Scullion. Three state security vans pulled up outside the church. Officers got out and began pounding the door, threatening to break it down. Inside, the pastor knew they'd come. Church gatherings had just been made illegal in his country, but pro-regime neighbours had spotted people entering and had informed the authorities to the applause of government media. Elsewhere, Christians met more discreetly. One church gave the location of services only to trusted people by word of mouth. Once assembled, hymns were sung, the Bible was read, and prayers were offered to God. More unusual was the location. The worshippers sat on hay bales in a barn, the service occasionally interrupted by livestock. These are not examples of the underground church in China, but from Britain last year. Wade McLennan, who came to the UK from America in the 1990s, leads the New Hope Community Church in Cardiff. He had initially closed his church in March 2020 when the whole UK went into lockdown, but by May he'd opened again despite the ban on religious services still being in place. He said, We don't deny there is a virus and we're grateful that we haven't been deeply affected by it, but we're not focused on it and we're not scared by it. Pastorally, we felt we couldn't just abandon everybody. The farmyard church is in the east of England. The pastor who spoke to me on condition of anonymity said that as far as he knows, theirs was the only church in the area that met during lockdown. He said, We disobeyed the government because we believe that the state does not have the authority to interfere with the worship of God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not Boris. 
both church leaders said their congregations grew hugely over the period. But civil disobedience doesn't come naturally to British Christian leaders. Despite pockets of resistance, the vast majority of churches complied with the lockdowns ordered by Downing Street and the devolved governments. And, inevitably, the Church of England entirely justified its establishment status. In March 2020, Archbishops Justin Welby and Stephen Cotterell told clergy they could not broadcast internet services from their churches, an edict that critic columnist and rector of St Bartholomew the Great, Marcus Walker, ignored. When lockdown first began, it took the atheist Simon Heffer to argue that the pandemic required a spiritual response beyond the limits of a politician. But, he complained, the Archbishop of Canterbury was not providing it. Given we were being warned of a possible death toll that would remove a higher proportion of our population than at any time since the Great War, did the Almighty's Anglican vicar on earth have something to say? He did not. Heffer wrote in the Telegraph. While the hierarchy of the Church of England remained in lockstep with the government, Christian leaders in other denominations slowly began to organise. Pastor Adia Muba, MBE, who co-founded Christian Concern and oversees several Pentecostal churches in the UK, said he had repeatedly tried to arrange a meeting with the government since March 2020, without success. In frustration, he assembled a group of like-minded church leaders to prepare for a judicial review. We had the head of the Caribbean denominations and other ethnic minorities who ministered to some of the poorest communities in the country joining us. It was a fantastic representation of Christians from different denominations, he said. By May 2020, it was legal to go to a bike shop, home base and a dry cleaner, but not to receive communion or pray silently in church. As the Church of England was silent, it fell to African, Asian and Afro-Caribbean church leaders to cite Magna Carta as a constitutional basis for church autonomy. Their legal letter argued that the forced closure of churches was disproportionate and also interfered with Article 9 of the European Declaration of Human Rights, so all atotemic moral reference points were hit. Within minutes of sending his pre-action letter, he was taking calls from special advisers in number 10. Later he found out there had been a regular meeting between the government's faith minister, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the head of the Roman Catholic Church. Eventually, he told me, we got ourselves invited and began to have some very frank conversations, sometimes heated. We kept going round in circles, but eventually they began to understand we were not going to back down on things like sacraments, singing and worship. Whatever the round table was doing before Amuba got there, it wasn't, it seems, sticking up for in-person services. In his Easter message 2020, entitled Our Towns Are Closed But Our Hearts Are Open, published in the Mail on Sunday, the Archbishop of Canterbury started by saying that in a crisis, we naturally turn to our leaders in Westminster. Boris Johnson had left intensive care just three days earlier. He left just two lines for the elephant in the room. Today my Easter sermon won't be delivered from a pulpit in Canterbury Cathedral. It was recorded on an iPad in my kitchen with my wife Caroline. The closure of churches is extremely painful, but the church is the people of God, not just a building. Extremely painful, but obviously in his mind, not wrong. His instructions to his clergy made it very clear they must not disobey the NHS's teachings, as revealed by their prophet, Sage. By September 2020, as Justin Welby was planning a three-month sabbatical for reflection, prayer and spiritual renewal, the drumbeat for a second lockdown was getting louder, and 700 church leaders sent a letter to Boris Johnson, Nicola Sturgeon, Marcus Drakeford and Arlene Foster, asking them not to close places of worship again. They argued it would cause serious damage to our congregations, our service of the nation and our duty as Christian ministers. One of the letter's signatories, Presbyterian Minister Reverend Paul Levy, went further, telling the Times that it was his duty to break the law if ordered to close. The signatures of the two archbishops were absent from the letter, 
but 150 Church of England ministers added their names, suggesting a sizable chunk of the clergy felt disconnected with the stay-at-home message swallowed and propagated by the Anglican hierarchy. Days before the second English lockdown arrived on the 5th of November, as Muslim and Roman Catholic leaders voiced their anger about public worship being shut down, Wellbeing Cotterill seemed to briefly show a crumb of self-reflection. In a letter to Church of England clergy, they wrote, We are sure that some of you reading this letter will wish we had made other decisions during the period of the first lockdown, or even challenged the government harder on the decisions it had made. You may be right, but in this second lockdown, we want to encourage church buildings to remain open for private prayer wherever possible. This was a very small ask, considering that meetings for recovering alcoholics and drug addicts were allowed to carry on in person, as were childcare groups and groups of gay and transgender people. Challenging the government harder is, of course, not dissent, and it will not surprise readers to learn that the differing responses of different churches were heavily influenced by theology. Frequently cited by Christians in lockdown was Romans chapter 13, in which the Apostle Paul tells the Christian church at Rome to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. But others cited the book of Daniel, when the king of Babylon passes a law prohibiting prayer to anyone except for himself for 30 days, on pain of being thrown into the lion's den, an edict which Daniel ignored. Willie Phillip, minister of the Tron Church in Glasgow, is clear how he sees the apparent conflict in theology. Treating Romans 1 as if we must kowtow to the government, whatever they say, is utterly naive. It has been abused by almost every miscreant dictator in history. Philip, whose legal claim against the Scottish government over church restrictions was upheld in court, points to the theologian Karl Barth, who argued that Romans 13 does not mean Christians should write their governments a blank cheque. Barth was responsible for the Barman Declaration, adopted in 1934 by German Christians, which opposed state control of their church, in opposition to the Deutsche Christian movement, who had embraced Nazism. Philip adds, We in the West have got so used to the church and state being more or less on the same wicket, but people don't realise that we are in a post-Christendom world now, and the older generation in particular don't seem to know how to handle that. The churches may have been baffled, but the state wasn't. The minister of the farmyard church agrees. I believe scripture commands us to meet physically together. The example we have in the New Testament is one of God's people being present with each other. The church today seems to have adopted an Erastian position that the state has authority over worship. This position is completely unbiblical, and it makes Jesus subservient to the prime minister. There are, of course, obvious problems with the state church disobeying the state. I'm aware, of course, many people think there are problems with the state church full stop. But as an example of how far from dissent the leadership of the Church of England finds itself, consider a letter written in January this year by the Bishop of Peterborough, Donald Allister, to the clergy in his diocese. The government had ordered another lockdown in England, but thanks in part to people such as Ade Amuba, who argued with politicians, civil servants and the police, places of worship were exempted. After being passed the ball, the Church of England seemed displeased to find themselves on the pitch. The bishop wrote of his surprise and dismay that churches would not be forced to close. Last March it was relatively easy, he said. The government used emergency powers to close churches. All I had to do was tell the clergy to obey the law. But this time the tricky part was getting churches to close. He lamented that he could no longer legally tell vicars to shut their doors, adding, If I am asked for my advice, it is certainly that you should close perhaps hoping that peer pressure would finish off anyone not swayed by his opinion, he revealed that around half the clergy had asked to suspend public worship, and that number is growing every day. But aside from age-old questions of church and state, some think something else was going on. 
Throughout the lockdowns, most church leaders maintained the uneasy message that meeting up in person was ideal, but that a Zoom or livestream service was still a real service. Many churches even began performing the sacraments over the internet, asking people to provide their own bread and wine to consume in front of their screens. Matthew Roberts, who previously convened the International Presbyterian denomination, is clear that this isn't the case. In a sermon worth quoting at length, because it's important to record the resistance to the ban, he addressed his York congregation on why we can't not worship. When William Tyndale translated the Bible into English in the 16th century, one of his most inflammatory decisions was his translation of the word ecclesia, church. He quite rightly had noticed that it means assembly or gathering. So he translated Jesus' famous words as, Upon this rock I will build my congregation, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We can genuinely worship God ourselves, or with our families and households, while we do so. But nevertheless, it is not church, it is not gathering, it is not the thing we are made for, not a taste on earth of our eternal destiny in heaven. So for those who cannot, for good reason, come together with the church for worship, Watching online is an excellent thing to do, but it should be seen as an excellent thing which merely relieves, but does not take away, the real grief and loss at not being able to gather in person. There has been very little theological discussion of what online church means, since it was not an issue encountered by previous generations of Christians, but it is perhaps unsurprising that in the latter days of liberalism, when we have rejected a teleological view of the body and relegated our social interactions to the virtual world, that so many Christians readily accepted the oxymoron of a virtual congregation. What else, apart from physical presence, can the criteria be for church attendance? Synchronised timing? Surely virtual service advocates would not exclude the many churches who recorded their message to be watched later. But if timing and physical presence are not valid criteria, the whole idea becomes absurd. Can I now attend services held before I was born? Can I have my son baptised with a bowl of tap water and a pre-recorded vicar on YouTube? Perhaps the only thing stopping us all from attending the Council of Nicaea, AD 325, was the lack of a decent video camera. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul argues that one way in which God punishes sin is by removing his constraints, thus allowing people to be destroyed by their own actions. Roberts believes something similar happened with lockdown. We've suffered a real disjunction between the physical and spiritual realms in recent years, he said, and become so utterly consumed by our screens that in a sense God has said, there you go, you can sit at home for the best part of a year with only a screen to look at. How do you like that? The ancient Gnostic heresy, which has plagued Christianity for thousands of years, drew on the ideas of the ancient world that there was a divide between an evil and corrupt physical world, which human bodies belong to, and the spiritual world, which was pure. This is why Gnostics found the idea of Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, so difficult to accept, as Tom Holland writes in Dominion. For some Christians, the teachings within Paul's letters and within the four earlier Gospels, that Jesus, a man tortured to death on the cross, was also, in some mysterious way, a part of the identity of the one God of Israel, was simply too radical to tolerate. Who then might he actually have been? Rather than commingling the earthly with the heavenly, some Christians argued, was it not likelier that his humanity had been mere illusion? How could the Lord of the universe possibly have been born of a mortal woman, still less of experienced pain and death? The idea that God himself came to earth as a baby and was born into a germ-filled barn is boringly familiar to those of us who remember our nativity plays, but the idea is becoming more radical today as we spend more and more of our time interacting and prioritising the non-physical. For those of us blessed and cursed with internet access, lockdown was a terrifying taste of what a non-physical world looks like. Everything was available, all of the time. The catch is that we barely needed to move a muscle to access it. 
that is a catch because as physical beings, how we use our physical bodies profoundly affects how we experience things. We all know this to be true, of course. In his De Gloria Trust lecture on evangelism in March 2019, delivered to an assembled crowd at Lambeth Palace, Justin Welby quoted Marshall McLuhan's truism, the medium is the message. A year later, he and other Christian leaders were proclaiming the Easter message of Christ's victory over physical death via YouTube. Welby told his iPad, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a hope that is surer than stone, than any architecture. The Church of England has drawn in the year, busily counting its congregation, and anecdotally the picture looks bleak. But church leaders who broke lockdown restrictions report that their flocks are thriving and are busier than ever. It wasn't cost-free for the lockdown breakers. Paul Levy, the minister at Ealing, a church that met illegally during the November lockdown, said he felt as if he had aged 10 years during that time. But few have regrets about their actions, save for thinking they should have met sooner. If there is a central picture of the church in Britain at Christmas, it's one of a deep malaise about the theological problems facing it. The other big issue is the hierarchy of the Church of England. Does anybody seriously think that praising the NHS as fundamentally right, joining the eco-doom cult of net zero, and telling people to stay at home on a Sunday is a brave message? Rightly or wrongly, people see the Archbishop of Canterbury not just as the leader of a denomination, but the voice of Christianity in Britain. For leaders of other Christian traditions, it was, in the words of Sir Geoffrey Howe, as if they were sent out to the crease, only for them to find that before the first ball is bowled, their bats have been broken by the team captain. Anglicanism has many splendid pavilions, but the light is fading. Covid was the chance to shine, and dim has been the response. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.